Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Ganga Lee, Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanandi. All glorious to the assembled devotees. All glorious to the assembled devotees. All glorious to the assembled devotees. All glorious to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glorious to Sri Guru and Om Vishnu Praya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityananda. Namaste, Sarasvati Devi, Govinda Pachani, Nivasasa Sindhani, Vaskajani Satarani. Vandeham Shri Guru, Shri Uta Padakamalam, Shri Guru Vaishnavam's Chap, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam, Sahagana, Raghunatam becomes Tamsajivam, Sadvoitam, Sadvaditam, Regina Saita, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha Krishna Padam, Sahagana Lalita, Shri Vishakam becomes Chap. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So it's April 29, 2009. Here in Auckland, we're reading. Bhagavad Gita, chapter 15, text 1 through 10, the upside-down banyan tree and how to get out. So we're, I'm going to be here again next week. So we'll finish chapter 15, and I'll be gone for two weeks. I'll be here the last, I'll be back again the last week of May, so whatever the last Wednesday is of May, we'll start again on chapter 16. How about the demons? Okay. So read together, 1 through 10. The Supreme Personality of God had said, It is said that there is an imperishable banyan tree that has its roots upwards and its branches down, whose leaves are the Vedic hymns. One who knows this tree is the knower of the Vedas. The branches of this tree extend downward and upward, nourished by the three modes of material nature. The twigs are the object of the senses. This tree also has roots going down, and these are bound to the fruit of actions of human society. The real form of this tree cannot be perceived in this world. No one can understand where it ends, where it begins, or where its foundation is. But with determination, one must cut down the strongly rooted tree with the weapon of detachment. Thereafter, one must seek that place from which, having gone, one never returns, and there surrender to that supreme personality of Godhead from whom everything began and from whom everything has extended since time immemorial. Those who are free from false prestige, illusion, and false association, who understand the eternal, who are done with material lust, who are free from the dualities of happiness and distress, and who, unbewildered, know how to surrender unto the Supreme Person, attain to that eternal kingdom. That supreme abode of mine is not illumined by the sun or moon or by fire or electricity. Those who reach it never return to this material world. Living entities in this conditioned world are my eternal fragmental parts. Due to conditioned life, they are struggling very hard with the six senses, which include the mind. The living entity in this material world carries his different conceptions of life from one body to another, as the air carries aromas. Thus he takes one kind of body and again quits it to take another. The living entity, thus taking another gross body, obtains a certain type of ear, eye, tongue, nose, and sense of touch, which are grouped around the mind. He thus enjoys a particular set of sense objects. The foolish cannot understand how a living entity can quit his body, nor can they understand what sort of body he enjoys under the spell of the modes of nature. The one whose eyes are trained in knowledge can see this. So again, this is part of the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna is explaining the material nature. And he's explaining the material nature in the sense of how does it work so you can get out of it? 
and this is something that doesn't exist in most other forms of religion present on this planet today and a real understanding of how the world works and how to get out of it so the first five verses of this chapter deal with the tree and then the rest of this chapter deal with the title, the Yoga of the Supreme Person or Purushottama Yoga so first Krishna is explaining how reality in this world is like a tree it's upside down and he talks about how the way to get out of this tree two things he talks about cutting down the tree with detachment and surrendering to the supreme person and then he starts explaining again the basic nature of the world who's the living entity and how the living entity is entangled and where one should go So Prabhupada starts off the purport to text one, saying that after the discussion that Krishna's already had, somebody may say, well, what about the Vedas? How, how do they fit into this? Krishna's doing something here, again, that is a really good model for those who teach. He's using an analogy. He's using an analogy. And we'll find that, you know what analogies are? Analogies are when I compare something to something else. And there's usually two forms, a simile and a metaphor. Simile is if I say, this is like this, and metaphor is I say, this is this. So when I say, Krishna's lotus feet, that's a metaphor, because obviously Krishna doesn't have flowers for feet. <laughs> we mean his feet are like flowers. They're soft, they're fragrant, they're beautiful, like a lotus flower. Of course, Krishna's feet are much nicer than any lotus flower. But still, it's a metaphor, and metaphor similes all kinds of analogies. Some are very short, like lotus feet is a very short analogy, and some are more involved. This one of the banyan tree is a little bit more involved, and we find that the great devotees also often use analogies for preaching. We've just finished a section of the Bhagavatam at New Varshana, where Narada Muni used some amazing analogies to preach to the sons of Daksha. And, of course, Narada Muni is like the penultimate example of analogy preaching. He, he loves to preach using metaphors. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati also often preached using metaphors and analogies, especially extended analogies. There's a little book published of the stories Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati would tell, and often these were not true stories, but they showed some truth. They were metaphorical stories, just like fables. And throughout the world, you'll find that teachings of morality, behavior, spirituality are taught using fables or allegorical stories. Srila Prabhupada also used a lot of allegories, analogies, fables, metaphors in his teaching. And the reason that there's so many reasons that they're very helpful, one reason is that it makes what's difficult easy to understand. We often talk about how this material world is a perverted reflection of the spiritual world. What does that mean? So here Krishna is saying what it means. And the whole time I was growing up, my parents had one painting in their home that was of a tree right by a lake. And the tree was reflected in the lake. And of course the reflection is, one, upside down, two, shimmering in the water. It's, so it's a perverted reflection. It's perverted because it's upside down and it's perverted because it's shimmering. 
not steady like the real tree. So everybody has seen, I think pretty much everybody has seen water, and everybody has seen something reflected in water, upside down and shimmering. So people can say, oh yeah, I understand that. It's like that. So that's one reason the analogies are very helpful. If you talk about something that's beyond our experience, but you compare it to something that's within our experience, well, we can, oh yeah, I get that. Another reason that analogies are very helpful is that they circumvent the false ego. Notice you had some stuff on the board in Spanish about the false ego. Ego falso, right? So if I just go to you and say, you're bad, we don't like that, right? You're full of lust and envy and greed. And then we're like, whoa, whoa, we feel like we're being attacked, right? Isn't it? And our, our, all of our shields come up. And we're thinking, why is this person insulting me? We, are, we become uh, unreceptive to whatever is being said. But if we say, oh, here's a nice story about somebody in the world who had this problem and that problem, and we'll all listen to the story and we'll nod our heads and we'll smile and we'll say, that was a very nice story. <laughs> and we'll take the message in. And often the message is taken in, according to modern psychology, the mes- message is often taken in unconsciously. But it still works. Sometimes people say, you have to give the moral. Actually, you don't even have to give the moral. Just telling the story is often sufficient. So if you want to tell somebody a very bitter truth, one of the best ways to do it is through analogies. That's another reason that analogies work. And they're also fun. People like to hear analogies. They like to hear stories more than they like to hear philosophy. I had the experience once at the Soho Temple. It was Madhvacharya's appearance or disappearance day. So I decided to give the class Madhvacharya's philosophy of dualism. And after maybe 10, 15 minutes, I realized that nobody in the class was with me. I thought this is not a very good idea for a public class to speak on very detailed, deep, technical, philosophical points. People did, they weren't interested. They couldn't follow. It just didn't relate to them. They really weren't there. So after a few minutes in the class, I kind of changed the, where I was going. So we find that stories are used. I mean, the whole Bhagavatam, which is philosophy, is, is philosophy in the context of stories. And of course, the Mahabharata, which is specifically compiled for the people of this age, that means me, <laughs> is all in the form of stories. I was speaking to one friend of mine who was trying to read through the Bhagavatam from beginning to end, and she was saying, oh, the second canto was so hard. I said, yeah, that's because there aren't stories in the second canto. It's all philosophy. You know, once you get through the philosophy and you get to the story of Bodhvaraha, it's like, wow, a story. <laughs> so to put philosophy in the form of a story or in the form of a mental picture, to take something philosophically difficult is very good teaching. The more you can do that, the more people will be interested, the, more they'll, the less that they'll rebel against what you have to tell them, <laughs> and the more easily they'll be able to understand. So you have all those benefits. People can understand it more clearly. They don't feel that they're being attacked. They don't feel that you're, you're criticizing them personally, even though a lot of our philosophy is very critical of conditioned souls. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> you know? And it's fun. 
it's more fun for most of us to hear stories or analogies or mind pictures than to just read straight philosophy. That's just where we are. So Krishna is demonstrating this. Actually, you can learn a lot about how to teach and how to preach from saying, how does Krishna preach? He's the best everything, including the best preacher. What does Bhaktivinoda Thakura say? Janaka janani daita tenai prabhu guru patituhu sarvamo. You are also my guru. Actually, all gurus are representatives of Krishna. So he's the best teacher. He, used, he gets all the best teaching techniques. All right, so since you're all preachers, eh? All right, so here we have this tree, and I think in Bhagavad Gita there may be a painting. We have this one in there. Let's see if there's one in this. Huh, somehow this edition I have is... Uh-huh, okay. So here we have this painting. I don't know if you can see it from so far away, but if you have it in your book, you'll see there's the spiritual world at the top, and here's the water. It says desire on the water. The tree's upside down. On the top bottom of the, of the reflection, on the top of the reflection is Lord Brahma, and you have the animals are at the bottom, the demigods are at the top, then you have human beings in the middle. The twigs are the sense objects. One thing that is very helpful to remember this section of the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to take these descriptions that Krishna gives and draw yourself a little picture. It doesn't have to be professional. It doesn't have to be something you put up on the wall. But it would really be a very good memory aid. Draw it yourself without looking at the picture in the book. Just from the words that Krishna says. Draw your own little tree. It will help you to remember this analogy and to use it in your own preaching. Please use this. It's, it's very, very helpful. So a banyan tree, of course, is very complicated. Who here has ever seen a live banyan tree? Okay, they're really complicated. And there's uh, one devotee's house in Hawaii where we often go to have programs. And you walk up the stairs to the house and you walk under part of a banyan tree. And, you know, the banyan trees put out roots from the branches and those roots that come from the branches get as big as the original roots. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots of roots everywhere. And after some time, you can't tell where the original root is anymore. And they just spread out over this wide area. So you, we're walking to his home. We walk underneath part of this tree. Sometimes the tree spans the roadway. And you'll find one root on the other side, another root on this side. And there'll be huge areas of forest there in Hawaii that are covered by one tree. So how do you cut down a banyan tree? How do you do it? You know, if you cut down one root, there's more. <laughs> you need to take a long time to cut down a banyan tree. If they want to control a banyan tree, what people will do is they'll cut the roots before they hit the ground, especially if the tree's growing over a road. <laughs> so you'll see that also in places where there's banyan trees. There'll be roots hanging from the branches, and you'll see that they've been cut, so they won't break the road. But once the tree's well established, how are you going to get it out? very, very difficult. So it says here that the process of, ex of extrication should be understood. Up to the 13th chapter, we've seen that devotional service to the Supreme Lord is the best way. Now, the basic principle of devotional service is detachment from material activities and attachment to the transcendental service of the Lord. So that's our basic principle. What's the basic principle of devotional service? What is it? 
attachment to service and detachment from the world. Okay? Detachment from the world and attachment for service. Basic principle. And that's how you can tell also how much you're advancing in Krishna consciousness. Am I feeling some detachment from the world? And am I feeling some attachment to service? And when I first started chanting Hare Krishna, I remember I was at university. I remember going home and sitting down kind of out of habit and turning on the television. And after, you know, 10 minutes thinking, this is really foolish. <laughs> and just turning it off and walking away and not caring. I wonder how the story ends. <laughs> I just didn't care. I just said, this is foolish. So that's the, what should naturally happen as one engages in devotional service is you just start to lose an interest in it. Ravinda Prabhu explains how when he first started visiting the temple and chanting Hare Krishna that he found all of a sudden that he was losing interest in many of the things of his material life. And so he got very frightened and stopped chanting. He thought, I wonder what this mantra is doing. <laughs> it's very pretty powerful stuff and in fact that's one reason why sometimes people don't take up Krishna consciousness they don't want to give up their material attachments it's very we've talked about this before but it's very difficult to take seriously to the process of Krishna consciousness and maintain material attachments we have that was one of the offenses right to maintain your material attachments but it's I was just hearing Shiram say that all of the offenses are kinds of inattention so really, to maintain material attachments and chant attentively is almost impossible. It's really almost impossible. Because as soon as you're chanting with attention and as soon as you're doing the process with attention, you see the world for what it is and you become detached. And you see Krishna for what he is and you become attached. You start liking Krishna. You start liking anything that has to do with Krishna. And Prabhupada says here, this reflection... Of the spiritual world is situated on desire just as the tree's reflection is situated on water. Desire is the cause of things being situated in this reflected material light. Whoa. Desire. That means, my dear friends, that why are we in this world? Because we want to be. Why am I not a pure devotee right now? Because I don't want to be. That's a hard thing to say, especially when you just started the process of Krishna consciousness. Because when you first come, you think, I really want to be a devotee. I really want to love Krishna. And I remember, soon after I moved in the temple, we were driving to the airport for distributing books, and I made some comment about how I really love Krishna. And one of the other ladies says, oh, you don't love Krishna. And I felt so discouraged. I mean, I really, I felt like deeply discouraged to, to my core. I just thought, what am I doing here if I don't love Krishna? Why should I even be here? And I, I remember one time in North Carolina giving a class where I was quoting from Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's Madhurya Kadambani. And I had those charts that we were looking at with the Nectar of Instruction classes where he talks about how much self-attachment we have and how much attachment we have to Krishna at each of the different stages, our self-consciousness and our Krishna consciousness, and how in the beginning it's just like a trace and I was saying how in the beginning we think, yes, I'm so attached to Krishna, but there's really, we're like 99% attached to ourselves and we just have a trace of attachment to Krishna. Anyway, after that class, there was one lady who stopped coming to my classes. And after about a month, I said, did I offend you? And she said, yeah, you said in class that we only have a trace of love for Krishna. But I love Krishna. 
I was just reading one of Prabhupada's lectures where he was talking about how Rupa Goswami says that what is the price for attaining Krishna? Greed, eagerness, desire. Desire. And Prabhupada said, so many people will say, well, I have eagerness, I have the desire, I want Krishna. Prabhupada said, no. He said that it's not such an easy thing. He said, for millions of lifetimes you can do pious activities and still not get that desire to serve Krishna. He actually said that desire comes by contact with the pure devotee. But one of the most incredible things that Prabhupada said there is he said that when you really desire Krishna, he said immediately you'll have Krishna. Immediately. So there's a good side and a bad side to really looking squarely at this fact. The bad side of it is I have to see that what do I really want? And the good side is it's a, it really is up to me. It really is what do I want? It's not just some chance thing. And some people will say, well, I have this and this problem in my life which makes Krishna consciousness harder. Okay. I was thinking about this a lot lately. Some people will say, well, I have this particular kind of attachment and it makes it harder for me to do Krishna consciousness. And yeah, but depending on how much we've done in our last lives and what attachments we've cultivated, what modes we've cultivated, some of us at this present moment have a higher advantage than others. But that's normal. If four people come to your yoga class and one has been practicing yoga for the last five years and one has never practiced it before, one person has an advantage over another. But it's something that we can do. We can cultivate the desire. Remember back in the, way back in the 12th chapter, when Krishna said the purpose of practice yoga or sadhana bhakti is? Well, yeah, but he used one word in particular. To get a taste, a desire. To get a desire, he used itcha, which means desire. He said the whole purpose of a bhyas yoga, bhyas means practice, the whole purpose of practice yoga is to cultivate a desire. So everything that we're doing, I mean, this is one of my recurring themes in my preaching because it's a recurring theme throughout the Shastra. The purpose of what we're doing is to cultivate a desire. Because Prabhupada says here, everything is situated on desire. It's all desire. That desire means something deep in the heart. So when we have that desire sufficiently, then we will have Krishna. And basically, to the degree to which we have that desire, Krishna reveals himself. Yayatamam prapadyante. So all of us have, have had Krishna reveal himself to us somewhat, or frankly, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> Krishna has shown himself to us to some degree, and we've said, wow, that was nice. I was just thinking in Slovakia one time, this rather new guest was at one of my classes, and he said, yeah, Krishna consciousness is thousands of times better than sex. I thought, okay, Krishna's revealed himself to this man a little bit. So we've all had some experience where Krishna has shown himself that he, where he's reciprocating with our desire. And when our desire is full, then Krishna will reveal himself to us in full, Prabhupada said, immediately. That, that's our purpose. That's what we're trying to do. And that cuts down the tree. That's it. And we'll get to a little later why that cuts down the tree. Now Prabhupada's also describing the tree here. He says, he talks about quite a lot in this section, as he does everywhere, how God is a person, how spiritual life is personal. 
And Prabhupada says that the fact that the tree is a reflection of the real tree means that there's variety in the real tree. That whatever we see here exists there in some form. Prabhupada says here, if Brahman is the center, then this material world is a manifestation of the center by 180 degrees, and the, other, the other 180 degrees constitute the spiritual world. The material world is a perverted reflection, so the spiritual world must have the same variegatedness, but in reality. So this, of course, is one of the most, I think, attractive aspects of Krishna consciousness. That we're saying that, you know, surrender to Krishna doesn't really mean giving up anything. It really means you're getting it in a better form. And that's why one becomes detached. If I have something better, naturally I'm detached from something that's worse. If you give me a whole feast, then why would I want to eat five-day-old bread? It wouldn't be interesting. You wouldn't have to talk me out of it. You wouldn't have to say, now, we don't eat this bread. I have no interest in it. It was a few weeks ago at the temple. There was one Sunday when three different devotees brought me plates of prasadam at the same time. So naturally, I would pick what was most tasty, right? So it's the same way. You know, if, you, if you've got, on one hand, you know, samosas, on the other hand, old bread, you're going to eat the samosas. That's natural. So Krishna is the reality. I mean, we, we read the pastimes of Krishna, and they're so attractive. Krishna's form is so attractive. Krishna's pastimes are so attractive. It's an eternal party, which is what we're trying to do here. But you can't do that here. This is a world of sacrifice and penance and purification. You know, you can't really have much of a party in a hospital. <laughs> Hospital's a place to get surgery and take medicine and right? It's not a place where, where there's much of a party. Alright, so Krishna's now in the next verse describing more of the tree. And Prabhupada says, as a tree is nourished by water, so this tree is nourished by the three modes of material nature. So our desire manifests in different modes. Because although we can just talk about material desire in a generic way, material desire means lust, material desire means rebellion, material desire means I want to enjoy separately from Krishna, exactly how, what flavor that manifests in is going to be different for each one of us. Your flavor of material attachment is different from yours, which is different from yours, which is different from mine. We each have, just like in the spiritual world, we each have a flavor of how we want to serve Krishna. So here we each have a flavor of how we want to enjoy. And that changes from one life to another. I'm going to try all the flavors. You know, it's like you go to this ice cream shop with 100 flavors. In Dubai, the devotees have a restaurant. There's several restaurants in Dubai, but one of them has like 50 flavors of ice cream. And all natural, all fresh, natural fruit. Whoa, they even have like kiwi ice cream. I don't know if you know what sitapal is. It's also called a custard apple. They had sitapal ice cream. I never had sitapal ice cream before. So I wanted to try all the ice cream, but of course I couldn't. So in order to try all the ice cream, I had to come back several times. So that's kind of what the material world is about. I wanted to check out all the different flavors all the different ways the three modes of nature can combine. So I have to come back. I can't eat it all in one body. You know? So Prabhupada says, you know, sometimes we find that attractive land is barren for want of sufficient water, and sometimes attractive is very green. Similarly, where particular modes of material nature are proportionally greater in, quant in quantity, the different species of life are manifested accordingly. 
So each species represents a different combination of the modes, and each particular body, each of our bodies represents a particular combination of the mode. And here it says here there's a different sense, the twigs are the different sense objects. So what we consider to be enjoyable depends on our particular modes of nature. What we consider to be enjoyable, what we are attracted to and what we are repelled by depends on our modes of nature. That provides the filter through which we perceive things as either pleasurable or painful. We don't all perceive the same things as pleasurable, do we? I know one devotee that his idea of dessert was sprinkling cayenne pepper, hot, spicy, you know, chili pepper, and salt on his plate and mixing it together and eating it. We'd all be sitting down for prasadam and, you know, what are you doing, Prabhu? Oh, that's my dessert. And we saw him even sprinkling hot chili pep powder on cake. So that's not my idea of pleasure. That's... That's my idea of suffering, but that's his idea of pleasure. We were talking about on Sunday how each of the ashrams has a corresponding pleasure and sacrifice. So some of us see it, something as a pleasure. It's like two sides of the same coin. You know? Someone sees the, the, the thing as a pleasure and someone sees it as a sacrifice. Depends on, on, on your particular... And of course, that, that the ashrams change throughout life. So what you see as a pleasure one time of your life, you may see as a sacrifice another time of your life. But that depends on the modes. What one sees as happiness and what one sees as distress. I was thinking about how, I asked what is the happiness of a, a brahmachari, brahmacharini life, and Sri Prahlad said, you get to live in the ashram of the guru. And I was thinking how the other night for uh, Mukunda Maharaj's Vyas Puja, one of his disciples was saying how she got to live at a temple where he was in charge and all of a sudden she saw his strict side. You know, she wasn't up for Mangalartik, he had someone knocking on her door, and, and she said it was very hard to live in the ashram of my spiritual master. So I was thinking, is living in the ashram of the spiritual master a pleasure, or is it an austerity? That depends on your perspective. So it's true with everything in the world. What is a pleasure, what is an austerity? There are certain things that I find revolting that other people find enjoyable. That's what Krishna is explaining here. All right. Going on to text three and four. The real form cannot be perceived in this world. No one can understand where it ends, where it begins. But with determination, one must cut down this strongly rooted tree with the weapon of detachment. This is one of my favorite verses. This particular section. But with determination, one must cut down this strongly rooted tree with the weapon of detachment. Thereafter, one must seek that place from which, having gone, one never returns. And there surrender to that supreme personality of Godhead. I don't know why. Those couple sentences really appealed to me, but I like them very much. And I, I give this little analogy many times, so you may have heard it from me before, but this is a true story. So Alexander the Great was conquering the world or trying to conquer the world or at least a piece of the world. And there was a knotted rope called the Gordian Knot, and there was a legend that whoever could untie this knot would become a world conqueror. Many people had tried. Have you ever had a, a knot in something that you just couldn't untie? <laughs> you know? In a shoelace or something? Or one of those, a roll of tape where you just couldn't find the beginning? You ever had one of those things, you know? 
So, so many people had tried to untie the scorpion knot and not been able to do it. And that's kind of the way Krishna's describing this banyan tree. He said, you're not going to be able to do it. He said, no one can understand where it ends, where it begins, or where his foundation is. We see this with psychotherapy. And yes, certain kinds of psychotherapy are useful for certain problems, for certain people sometimes, undoubtedly. However, if you think you're going to solve all of your materials problems with psychotherapy, you're going to be going to therapy for a very, 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 very long time. All right, now let's do some hypnotic regression and find out what lifetime this came from and where that came from. And it's, it's a banyan tree. You can't find the root. You can't untie the knot. So Alexander the Great, he went and he's trying to untie the knot. And like all the dozens or hundreds of people before him, he couldn't do it. So what did he do? No. He took out his sword and he just cut it. <laughs> he said, okay, I've untied the knot. <laughs> Wham, <laughs> cut it. That's exactly what Krishna is telling us to do. Don't try to untie it. Just cut it. Don't try to figure it all out. I mean, it, yes, it is useful to figure out little parts of it for little purposes here and there. But in general, don't try to figure it all out. You'll never figure it all out. We were talking about this, Gitavali and I, going back to the temple last week, how, you know, you can, you, our, oh, this tree is like all of our inarches, all of our attachments, all the different bodies we've been through and will go through, and all of our, you know, I liked pistachio ice cream in one lifetime, and I like butternut pecan in this lifetime, or whatever, right? And we... First, in devotional service, it's like you're getting rid of this little piece of this sanarta and this little piece of this sanarta. But as soon as you surrender to Krishna, as soon as you really desire to Krishna, you cut down the whole thing. Done. You don't have to worry about this little sanarta, that little sanarta. It's all finished. So why is that? What's, what's our essential sanarta? What's the basic root? Pride. A desire to be the Lord. Bhakti puts it as fame, which we'll come to also in the next verse, which is another one of my favorites. Those who are free from false prestige, illusion, and false association, who understand the eternal, who are done with material lust, who are freed from the dualities of happiness and distress. We get these kind of descriptions a lot in the Bhagavad Gita. And who, unbewildered, know how to surrender unto the Supreme Person, attain to that eternal kingdom. What do you have to do? Surrender to the Supreme Person. And Prabhupada says here, for one who is always expecting some honor in this material world, it is not possible to surrender to the Supreme Person. Pride is due to illusion, for although one comes here, stays for a brief time, and then goes away, he has a foolish notion that he is Lord of the world. So we think like that. We all think, what I'm doing is so important. I'm a very important person. When will I be recognized as an important person? Please, this doesn't mean that you should mistreat the other devotees and not recognize the things they do or treat them nicely in the name of developing their humility. Please try to develop your own humility. <laughs> but we should show great appreciation and respect for what other people do. And you can say, well, doesn't that just nourish the false ego? Well, you know, even in the spiritual world, people show appreciation for what other people do. They're not nasty. When the cowherd boys are dancing and singing, Krishna says, oh, you're dancing and singing very nicely. Krishna compliments and appreciates 
the service of the devotees. In fact, it says that Krishna appreciates any tiny little service that's rendered. And he remembers that. You were asking, I think, I think you were asking last week. You know, suppose somebody has this lifetime of sin, right? And then they've done one little thing. But Krishna remembers one little thing. So we should also always be encouraging to others. You know, we have, we have a hunger. All of us have a hunger for recognition and for appreciation and for respect. Now that shows up in a perverted way in this world. Remember the trees upside down? Whatever exists here exists, exists there. We have a perverted desire for that in this world, that we want the recognition for ourselves personally. But there is a spiritual form of that. The spiritual form of that is I want to, everyone to say, oh, Krishna is so happy about what you've done. My happiness comes from the fact that I've made Krishna happy. Prabhupada said the residents of Vrindavan, all they care about is whether or not Krishna is smiling. We see that also in this world. I become happy if I've made someone else happy. You know, if I give you a present for your birthday and you like it, then that's my happiness. Hey, I spent some of the, my money I could have spent on me. But I, I find more happiness making you smile than I find making me smile. Your smile makes me smile. So if, I, if someone says to me, oh, this service is so nice, Krishna's, Krishna must be smiling, your Guru Maharaj must be smiling to see this service, that's spiritual. That's the kind of spiritual recognition we're hungering for. So we can look for that ourselves, and we can give that to others. Don't think that giving up this desire for respect means that I no longer, you know, all of a sudden I've lost my need for appreciation and respect and consideration. You can't lose your need for that. That's part of the soul. And, and you see devotees try to, and it just doesn't work. They think, all right, I'll just go around and never care what anybody thinks about me. You can't. But you can care what Guru and Krishna think about you. And if someone says to you, oh, I'm sure Guru Maharaj is really happy with this. Yes, that's a source of great satisfaction. So we should give that to others. And if we're looking for respect on that platform, we'll become disinterested in the material respect. Material respect is, oh, you're so great, you're so clever, you're so this, you're so that. I mean, am I really this or that? Krishna can take away all this and that in a moment. Whatever, whatever my talents are, they're all on loan. <laughs> And, that, and we know that, and therefore that kind of respect is not really very satisfying, is it? Is it? It's not. Because you're always thinking, well, I'm not really that clever. I'm not really that, you know, I'm really not that good. And it's not really me, you know, we're always then afraid we're going to lose it. So let's give up that thing. Let's give up wanting respect and fame and pride on the basis of something false, which only causes us anxiety. And let's get look for our respect and pride in the fact that I've been able to make Krishna happy. That's our natural way of getting happiness. Krishna's happy, I'm happy. My happiness is from Krishna's happiness. It's a, it's a very, very simple thing to do. It's very loving. It's a way to show real love for yourself. And it's a way to show real love for Krishna. And it's a way to demonstrate love for the other devotees. So as soon as that's gone, as soon as that desire to enjoy separately from Krishna, wanting to enjoy with Krishna is fine. <laughs> Krishna wants us to enjoy. He doesn't want us to suffer. <laughs> you want your friends to enjoy with you, right? Don't you? Well, he's like that too. You want your family to enjoy with you. You know, like at your wedding, if your family members don't show up, you're not very happy. 
You don't want them enjoying separately from you. You don't, you don't want to have your wedding and your family says, well, we have more important things to do than come to your wedding. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, there's a big football game on today. We want to stay home and watch it. You'd be offended, right? That's, that would be offensive to you. But if your family members come to your wedding and enjoy with you, that's very pleasing to you. So Prabhupada also says, one has to cultivate knowledge of what is actually his own and what is actually not his own. Because Krishna says here, false association, right? false prestige, possessiveness, false association called by familiar social and national affections. So what is our own? What belongs to us? There's something that belongs to us. Everything we have belongs to Krishna, but there's one thing we have that belongs to us. Because Prabhupada says, once you know, once you cultivate knowledge of what is actually his own and what is not actually his own, what is not our own is our intelligence, our artistic talent, our, all, these, all those abilities that can be taken away in a moment. But what is it that can never be taken away that belongs to us? Our independence, yes, our will, our desire. Our will and our desire, that's ours. We own that. That's something I own. And therefore, that's really the only thing that I can give. Giving all these other things is symbolic of giving that and helps me to give that. The reason that I give my time, the reason that I give food, and the reason that I give so many things to Krishna is what I'm really trying to do is give my desire. Again, you know, you're having a, it's your birthday party or you're getting married, and do you want your relatives to be there out of obligation? You want them to be there because they want to be there. Right? What is it you, you're really asking from them? Their desire. And their desire may be manifest by the fact that they show up or the fact that they give you a gift or the fact that they congratulate you. That may be ways of expressing their desire. But what you're really looking for is their desire. Looking for their relationship, that they like you, that they want to be with you. That's what Krishna wants also. And that's something that we can give to him. All right, now we've finished with the tree. And now Krishna's describing the spiritual world, the nature of the living entity, Purushottam Yoga. He says that his world is not illumined by the sun or moon, fire of electricity, and if you go there, you don't have to come back here. Right? Oh, I should mention also with text 5 that Krishna says, know how to surrender. So how do we surrender? That's how we surrender. That's the basis of how you surrender. I turn my attachment from Maya to Krishna. That's how you do it. That's what surrender means. Right. So Prabhupada says in this purport, one should be captivated by this information. He also talks about the same thing in the Bhagavatam, third canto, where he says that one should be captivated by the descriptions of Vaikuntha. He should desire to transfer himself to that eternal word and extricate himself from this false reflection of reality. So just like here in New Zealand, many people in the world want to come to New Zealand, don't they? Why? They've heard about it, or they saw it in, what was that, Lord of the Rings, or if it was filmed in New Zealand. So they saw it in some movie, or they heard about it, and they became captivated. And they thought, you know, yeah, I want to go there. You want to see something? 
Right? That makes sense? I'll never forget when I went to Trinidad, this beautiful Caribbean island. And almost all the devotees there told me they wanted to go to New York. I was just, I said, you know, in New York, there are signs everywhere. Go to the Caribbean. I said, what will you do in New York? And there, there were so many mangoes that they were lying on the ground rotting. You know? When I came there, the devotee picked me up from the airport, hands me this gift of a very carefully wrapped red delicious apple. So we wanted to buy you a really special gift. Two dollars for one apple. I didn't have the heart to tell her that red delicious apples were, you know, common, like pigeons. <laughs> I said, I came here, I wanted a mango. And then she said, oh, there's mangoes lying on the side of the road rotting. <laughs> she said, what kind of mango did you want? I said, kind of mango? <laughs> she said, yeah, we have 40 kinds of mangoes. <laughs> but the, because they had heard about New York, they were captivated. At the Sunday feast, every single thing served at the Sunday feast was grown by the devotees in their backyards. Everything. Everybody had a glass of passion fruit juice. I said, what is this drink? Oh, passion fruit juice. He said, have you ever had it? I said, well, it costs like $2 a bottle in America. They said, yeah, we all have passion fruit vines growing in our backyard. Right? But still, they were captivated by the idea of New York. I don't know why they were captivated by New York. And they all wanted to go there. So if people living in a tropical paradise can be captivated by New York, why can't we be captivated by the spiritual world, which is really a nice place? No sun, no moon, no electricity. Everything's full of light. Everything's full of light. Here everything is dark. So just that one thing is captivating. Everything is effulgent. Everything is bright. And just like people will work very, 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 very hard to come to New Zealand or New York or wherever they want to go to. (laughs) People work hard for years. They'll save their money all year to go to Disney World. So why can't we work that hard to go to the spiritual world? Someone should be captivated. Prabhupada says we should associate with devotees. We should search out a society dedicated to Krishna consciousness. Actually, only when we become captivated by the spiritual can we become detached from the material, truly detached, because we can't live without pleasure. So if we're not cultivating spiritual pleasure, then we'll go to material pleasure. The very end of this purport prophet says that supreme abode can be achieved by only by surrender and by no other means. So again we're going to look at what is surrender and why will that solve all the problem. We're here because we were rebellious. We are rebellious. We don't want to surrender. We have feelings of envy towards Krishna. And as soon as we surrender, then that's all gone. That's the whole root of everything. All the, all the other manifestations, my desire for, you know, a purple silk sari or pistachio ice cream or to move to wherever, you know, Amsterdam or to marry this person or never to get married or to live. All these desires that I have, they're all just the little branches and leaves and twigs of this root 
of I want to do what I want to do and I want to be the controller and I want to be the Lord and I want to decide what's good and I want to be the center and I want to enjoy separately from Krishna that they're all coming from that root so you take out the root and all those other little things go away and they're just gone and then what do you have in their place oh I think I'd like to do this for Krishna I think I'd like to do that for Krishna I think I'd like to do this for the Sankirtan movement I'd like you know I have then one starts manifesting the real tree of one's variegated spiritual desires so surrender of course surrender in English is a really bad word surrender is something you do in a war when you don't want to you're fighting a war against your enemy and you wanted to win you wanted your enemy to surrender but your enemy was stronger than you you know they threw an atom bomb on your cities or something and you just gave up you said I can't do it you know okay I surrender but you don't like it you don't like it you go to the the surrender meeting and you've got to sign the paper and your enemy says unconditional surrender and you say I don't I don't like it why are those Americans telling me I have to unconditionally surrender and you sign the treaty and, and you hate your enemies after that like Germany after World War One. The Germans hated the rest of Europe because they had to surrender. So when Hitler came and said, hey, let's conquer our old enemies, they said, yeah, let's go for it. And you see that a lot of countries will fight over and over and over again. The Spanish and the British, the French and the British, they're fighting over and over and over again. They have a war, they settle it, and then they have another war, and they settle it. Right? Why? Because they didn't want to surrender. They surrendered because they didn't feel they had a choice. They saw the other, the other side was stronger. They were cornered. Their leader was killed, whatever. So we think of surrender like that. All right, Krishna. I can't be happy here. You win. Why? Why do you have to make the world miserable? It's all your fault. Now I got to surrender to you and do whatever you say, oh transcendental autocrat. You know? We read Bhakti Sinat just says Krishna is a transcendental autocrat. We go, I don't want to surrender to any autocrat. I come from a democracy, thank you very much. (laughs) But that's not the kind of surrender. It's not the kind of surrender. Krishna's talking about a surrender of love. He's talking about a very different kind of surrender. It's the surrender of the the husband and wife, they're, they're in love with each other. And they surrender their bodies to each other, quite literally. That's a surrender. Right? The husband gives his body to his wife. Wife gives her, her body to her husband. Here's my body. Do with it as you want. That's surrender. But why? Because it's love and there's trust. I trust this person is not going to misuse me. Right? You surrender to your child. You give yourself to your child. You literally give your body to your child. Quite literally. <laughs> I once met a a woman who told me that, as a married woman, that she'd had an abortion because she couldn't stand the thought of some other living being growing inside of her body. Pretty amazing. So surrender, I give my body, all right. You know, I'll, I'll let my child grow inside my own body. I'll nourish the child from my own body. That's surrender, but that's love. It's still surrender. 
You're still surrendering. You know, or we've surrendered ourselves to a spiritual master and we've said, okay, I'm going to do what, you, what you're asking me to do. But it's love. It's not forced. We could walk out and go if we wanted to. And we want to do that. It's a, and it's a very joyful thing. And we surrender to our friends. Yesterday I was at Tech Prasadam in a devotee's house and their little daughter just turned four years old and the mother spent all day cooking, probably. She made these veggie burgers and it was this big endeavor and then she made this cake that looked like a heart. It had, I don't know, like four layers. That's surrender. And she's using her time and her energy to make somebody else happy. And that's the, that's what the kind of surrender that Krishna's talking about. It's a surrender of love. It's saying, you know, I was really foolish, my Lord, to think I could be happy without you. I'm sorry. What would you like me to do? As uh, one devotee recently explained it to me, you give your free will to Krishna and he gives it back to you. He said, it's like prasadam. You make this really nice food and you give it all to Krishna. And of course, there are some pastimes where the plate would be empty. But generally speaking, Krishna gives it back to you. So I'm so afraid of giving my, what is it we own again? Our, our will, our desire, our, that's what we own. And I'm so afraid of giving that to Krishna. Because of course in this world, when I give my will to somebody, they do more or less exploit it. It's a fact. And when people give their will to me, I more or less exploit them too. I mean, work both ways. <laughs> So I'm afraid. I'm thinking Krishna's going to cheat me. He's going to exploit me. Therefore, it's a gradual process. So I gradually get convinced that Krishna is Subhadam Sarabhutanam. What, what reason does he have to exploit me? He has no reason. He, has no, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need me. He can go on eternally without me, and he'll do just fine. But he wants me because he loves me. Not because he wants to use me, but because he's interested in my happiness. Krishna is actually more interested in my happiness than I am in his happiness. Just like parents are usually much more interested in the children's happiness than the children are interested in the parents' happiness. So he wants me to come back to him for my happiness. You know, it's like you're, you've got a rebellious child who's, you know, the party's going on and the kid's going, I don't want to go. I'm not going. So that's surrender. Surrender is I give Krishna my will. I give Krishna my desire. And I say, here's my will. Do whatever you want with me. Whatever you ask me to do, whatever you want from me, you can do. I'll do anything. I'll pay any price and I'll do anything. And I'm going to repeat this. Don't say that if you don't mean it, please. And then what does Krishna say? He says, well, what, what would you like to do? He gives it back to you. What would you like? How would you like to serve me? Lord Kapiladev says that the Lord takes the form of what the devotee desires. So to that extent, Krishna takes whatever form we desire to see him in, however we desire to reciprocate with him. Krishna has no interest in a forced relationship. It doesn't appeal to him. I mean, even for most of us, we're not so interested in forced relationships. 
again, you, you really don't want people at your party because they feel obligated. I mean, that's better, I suppose, than them not coming at all, but that's not really what you want. So Krishna is fairly pleased by people who are religious out of a sense of duty and because it says so in the scriptures. I mean, that's, that's better as far as he's concerned than them doing nothing, but that's not really what he's interested in. So he's not, he's not interested in force. Anyway, and then that takes care of the whole tree. That finished. Once I genuinely do that, but genuinely doing that in a deep way is difficult. It takes time because I don't have faith. That's what it is. Does that make sense? All right. And now Krishna's going to talk about why it's hard. This is a, a key verse that Prabhupada quotes a lot. Mamai vamso jiva loke jiva bhuta sanatana manasas tanindriyani prakriti stanikarsati. So first point is that we're eternal fragmental parts. Prabhupada says it's not that he assumes individuality in his conditioned life and his liberated state becomes one with the supreme. He is eternally fragmented sanatana. So we are eternally a separate person. We are also one with Krishna. <laughs> we are both. One with, we are eternally one with him and we are eternally separated from him. We're, etern- we're eternally an individual. Okay. Prabhupada talks about that this fragmenting at the end of the purport. He said that we've already understood in the second chapter that the spirit cannot be cut into pieces. This fragment is not materially conceived. It is not like matter which can be cut into pieces and joined together again. That conception is not applicable here because the Sanskrit word sanatana is used. The fragmental portion is eternal. So that's a difficult thing to understand. I mean, we, again, we can look at analogies. Like Prabhupada says, the parent creates the child, but the child is separate and the parent is separate. There's some oneness. There is some oneness. We share genetic material with our parents. When we're in our mother's womb, we're eating through our mother. It's one eating, one breathing. We're breathing through her. We're eating through her. But still we're separate. The baby is still a separate person even in the womb. It may have a different blood type from the mother. It has a different personality from the mother. So there's a oneness with the mother and there's a difference from the mother. Of course, that's a material analogy because we're totally one with Krishna and we're totally separate from Krishna. We're not a fragment in the sense, because the impersonalists sometimes think it's like a piece of paper, you cut it up into little pieces. And they think God has been transformed. If you really want to study this, go to Chaitanya Charitamrita Adi Lila, chapter 7, where the impersonalists say that God has been transformed into the world, into us. That God's like, you know, I'm a little piece of God, and you're a little piece of God, and you're a little piece of God, and there's a little piece of God, and we all come together and we're God. That God has no separate existence that God is simply like the sum total of all of us. So no, that's not what Krishna means here. And this again relates to Isra Upanishad, Om Purnamada Purnamadam, Purnat Purnat Udachate, Purnasya Purnam Adaya, Purnam Eva Vasishate. God is complete. Take us out of him. We're complete and he's complete. And it, we're eternal. So we're a part of him, but we exist eternally. We weren't created, we never were created at a particular time, which is also very hard to understand materially speaking. All right, other points here is that, so that's talking about Jiva Bhutta Sanatana. And Vamsa means a part. Then Manashastran Indriyani Prakriti Stani Karsati. Karsati means to struggle. And Prabhupada says, you were bound up by false ego. The mind is a chief agent which is driving him in this material existence. When the mind is in the mode of goodness, his activities are good. When the mind is in the mode of passion, his activities are troublesome. 
When the mind is in the mode of ignorance, he travels in the lower species of life. So, again, it's based, based on desire. What are we wanting? What are we thinking about? And Prabhupada says here that when a living entity gives us this material embodiment and enters into the spiritual world, he revives his spiritual body. Revives. Vive means life. Revive comes to life again. So sometimes people say we never had an original spiritual body, but Prabhupada's using her, the word here, revives. People who say that we never came from the spiritual world, they, they say we didn't have a spiritual body that our spiritual body was in a dormant state forever. And then we decided, you know, do I want to go here, do I want to go there? I see that that philosophy comes from trying to understand things in terms of time. But here Prabhupada says we revive our spiritual body. That means the spiritual body was already there. And Prabhupada says here then he can see the Supreme Lord face to face, hear and speak to him face to face, and can understand the Supreme Lord as he is. Oh, it's also interesting here, Prabhupada says, as far as bodily construction is concerned, there is no difference between the part and parcel living entities and the expansions of Vishnu Murti. So, you know, Krishna has a body, Angani, Asya, Sakalandriya, Vritti, Pasanti, Pantikala. He has a body where each of his limbs can perform the action of his, any of his other limbs. So Prabhupada says here, we also get a spiritual body like that. Sometimes you see some reflection of that in this world. There are some people who can hear uh, colors and see music and called synesthesia and they like that by the way they don't want to be cured of it alright text 8, 9 and 10 are talking about what's the process of transmigration 8 and 9 specifically that we're carrying our different conceptions of life like the air carries aromas again it's all the mind everything is, is situated on the mind Prabhupada says minute independence is there the change his body undergoes depends upon him so even within this material world we can choose how do I want to be entangled do I want to be entangled in goodness, passion or ignorance I've heard devotees say that our only choice is to surrender to Krishna or surrender to Maya and then once you surrender to Maya then you're just buffeted around without any choice but then the law of karma makes no sense the law of karma is I have choice materially speaking Prabhupada says my new independence is there I have a little bit of choice as to what modes I associate with which then gives me my particular kind of body and Prabhupada talks here a lot about uh, the law of karma. And then he says, if he's in Krishna consciousness, we transfer to Krishna Loka. So it's the same principle. I think about something material, I get that particular kind of body. I think about something spiritual, then I get my spiritual body back. It's the same process, it's just different objects. Okay, then in nine, we get a certain type of ear, eye, nose, da da da, grouped about the mind. Again, the mind is the center. My my subtle body, my mind, has a form. That's why some people can see ghosts. They're seeing the form of the mind. A ghost is mind, intelligence, and ego. So according to my mind, I get a particular kind of eye, nose, ear that fits my mind. Exactly like I bought this jacket because it fits my body. I don't want it too big, I don't want it too small. And I have a particular desire. I want it to fit I want it to fit not only the shape of my body, but I want it to fit my idea of taste. What color do I like? What style do I like? So I was saying, well, that's why we got this body. And just like you may buy some clothes, and then once you get them, you think, oh, this isn't, this isn't really exactly perfectly what I wanted. So then maybe you buy another one. 
Right? If you have enough money, you'll keep buying them until you try to find the perfect one. You'll have a closet full of shoes or whatever. People do that with clothes, with cars, with houses. I have one friend who's like that with houses. She always wants to buy a new house. Whatever house she's in, after she's in it for a month, she wants to buy a new one. I mean, we think that's a little funny just because houses are very expensive and very troublesome to move from one house to another. That's exactly what we're all doing in this world. We're all constantly trying to buy a new house. And we're taking a lot of trouble to move from one body to another. It's a lot more trouble to move from one body to another than from one house to another. That's exactly what we're doing. We're doing that according to the mind. And again, if we meditate on Krishna, then we go to Krishna. Same, same principle. Whatever I'm meditating on. And Prabhupada says here that people can understand how this is happening, but if you're trained in knowledge, and when you're in illusion, you just, by definition, you're in illusion and you can't tell what's going on. So therefore, you need somebody who does know what's going on. You need somebody who's not in illusion, so Prabhupada says this must be heard from a bona fide spiritual master. It's somebody who's out of this cycle, who's no longer wanting to enjoy in this material world, can tell us how these things are going on. One needs higher guidance. Right. That's pretty good. 836. Ta-da! Okay. Questions and things you'd like to share? Let me start with you. So there's, there's services you don't want to do, but you do yeah. them anyway? Yeah, sometimes. Well, everybody has to do that. Yeah. Oh, duty's better than nothing. Yeah. You don't want to be in the mode of ignorance and not even do duty. Duty's, duty done with a happy attitude is goodness, and duty done with resentment is passion. If you're doing your duty and you're thinking, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, I don't like this, this stinks, that's mode of passion. Resentment. But if you're doing your duty and thinking, I'm so happy that I can, you know, I don't like this particular job, but I'm so happy that I get a chance to do something for my guru and for the devotees, even though I'd rather be doing a different job. This job isn't very pleasing to me, but I'm glad I have an opportunity for service. That's goodness. The Prabhupada talks about, you know, the first-class servant is the one who knows the master's desires without the master even saying anything. The second class, the master says something and the, the servant immediately does it happily. The third class, the servant does it grudgingly. And tenth class doesn't do it at all. So third class is better than tenth class. So better to do your duty grudgingly than not at all. One way to go from doing things grudgingly to doing things happily is to really... Think about why you're doing it. I just did that the other the other day. So I was invited to come to a particular program, and I was thinking, I don't want to go. 
I had a project I was in the middle of working on. And you know what it is. You're in the middle of working on something, and I didn't want to stop. And the momentum was going, and it was, it was I, I didn't want to stop. I thought, ah, oh, I have to go to this program. I won't be able to finish what I'm doing. And my mind was just whining like a little child. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I thought, oh, I have to go. And then I stopped and thought, okay, wait a minute. Why are you going? So first of all, you don't have to go. You have minute independence, and you can choose what you want to do with your life. You're not obligated to go. So why are you going? Okay. And this is a mantra Krishna Swami teaches. I choose to do blank because I want blank. So I thought, I choose to go because I want. I thought, what do I want? I thought, well, I want to go to a kirtan. I definitely want to go to a kirtan. Okay. And the kirtans at this program are particularly nice. Had experience that they're, they're really, really nice kirtans. So I want to go to the kirtans. Okay. Also, I choose to go because devotee A invited me and I value my relationship with her and I'd like to go to show her support. And I choose to go because devotee B also invited me and I like her. I have a nice relationship with her and I want to show support and love for her also. So I decided that. I was choosing to go because I like to go to kirtans, especially those kirtans are particularly nice, and because I like my relationship with those two devotees, each of whom invited me. And then all of a sudden I was able to walk out the door with a different mentality. So I choose to do this because I want. Now sometimes when you use that formula, you may find that you don't choose to do the thing. I I used to have students living at our house to attend our school and they all had to do different chores. And one of the chores was to take out the compost. So one of the students who lived with me, I think she lived with me for about a year, she was very upfront with me from the beginning. She said, Mother Mala, I really don't like dealing with compost. And I often wondered if in her past life she was a demigoddess or a queen. She, she had that kind of, she didn't come from a family like, she didn't, you know, but she had that sort of refinement about her. You understand? Kind of like an aristocratic, which you couldn't, you know, you couldn't make sense out of it from this life. And she had a, a real taste for the sort of activities that women of leisure do. You know, like art and embroidery and stuff. She, she, was, she really liked those kind of things. She spent all of her time doing those sort of things. Anyway, whenever it was her job to take out the compost, whenever she came to that on the schedule, it wouldn't get done. I'd have to remind her. Hey, Krishna Dasi, compost. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And after a while, it would be, uh, the compost is overflowing, and it's really stinking up the kitchen. Would you please take care of it? So then she would take care of it. So after a few times of her being on the schedule for compost and going through this, I said, you really don't like taking out the compost, do you? She said, I really don't. I said, okay, I'll take you off the schedule for compost. (laughs) So sometimes it may be, you know, sometimes we may look at something and say, I really don't choose to do this. And then, of course, you have to face the consequences of it. The consequences may be that you don't live in the ashram anymore or that whatever. I mean, there may be some consequence. But it is good to be honest. And sometimes you may say, I, I really don't choose to do this. There's nothing I want that, in, that is inducing me to choose to do this. Honesty is good. Honesty is not a bad thing. So think about what you, you know, why am I doing this? 
Why am I chanting 16 notes? I choose to chant 16 notes because I want what? Why am I chanting with attention? Or if I'm not chanting with attention, you know, deal with it. I'm choosing to intentionally space out at my rounds because I want to forget Krishna. Look at it. It forces you to, to be... Do you, do you see what that will do to you? And then you say, well, wait a minute. Do I really want to forget Krishna? Maybe you do really want to forget Krishna. Okay. What to do? It's not, it's not force. All right? But all there's, there's parts of everything that we're just not going to like. I mean, I like taking care of babies, but I never like cleaning poopy nappies. I never liked that. Not once, ever. I never enjoyed it. I know Lord Chaitanya says that you're supposed to, that you're supposed to see it like sandalwood paste, but I just didn't. I didn't like it. But I had to be done, you know. I. So every job has its things like that. It's just part of the way the material world is. I really like the service I'm doing right now, but I don't like the part of it that I have to do right now, where we're I'm checking a list of words against the words that are in a book and making sure they correspond. It's very difficult, tedious, boring work. It's extreme. I don't like it at all. But I choose to do the work because I want to produce a reading program that is all that doesn't have the stakes in it. So while I'm doing that job that I don't I really don't like that job. I mean intensely so. But while I'm doing it, what I'm meditating on is some little kid using the program and some adult using it with them and saying, oh, this is a really good program. I'm so glad we finally have a Krishna conscious reading program. And I know if I don't do this step, that people will be using it and they'll say, why is this word here? This word shouldn't be there. They haven't learned that word yet. This isn't very professionally done. We can't use this. We'll just have to use another program. And then I feel inspired. Now this morning I noticed that the outside of the toilet was dirty in the bathroom that I use. And I started thinking, you know, that sometimes I have guests who come and they want to use the bathroom and that they'd like to find it clean. So I don't particularly enjoy cleaning a toilet. I haven't met somebody who enjoys cleaning a toilet. But I enjoy the fact that I'm doing something that will please the devotees. And therefore I enjoy cleaning the toilet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or, I'm th- you know, I'm thinking about how Krishna will be pleased. I'm thinking about how, you know, Prabhupada's looking at the project that I'm working on and that he's smiling and thinking, oh, thank you for doing this project. I asked that this project be done in, you know, 1972. <laughs> now it's finally getting done in 2009. Thank you. You get a taste for pleasing Krishna. You may never get a taste exactly for comparing wordless or peeling carrots or whatever it is. But you get a taste for pleasing Krishna. You get a taste for pleasing Guru. You get a taste for pleasing the devotees. And that's so pleasurable that, you know, that then it does become pleasurable to check the word lists and clean the toilet. Because it's part of relationship. If you're doing it, you are choosing to do it. There's nobody with a gun to your head, generally. I've never had anybody put a gun to my head and force me to do something. Have you? 
And most of us, I mean, maybe, you know, but I think it's pretty rare. Nobody said to me, you know, I'm going to kill your best friend if you don't do this. It's just, you know, I've never been in that kind of a situation. I always have a choice. Even when I could say I'm forced, you know, I'm forced to go through the security line. No, I'm not. I don't have to fly. Or I could yell at the security guards and get put in jail. I mean, I, I, I have a choice. <laughs> so, you know, I choose to do this because I want. I choose to go through security because I want to travel to Dubai. Maybe it's just I, ch I choose to clean the toilet because I want to be able to live in the ashram. I choose to clean the toilet so because I, I want to get along with the other devotees and I want them to yell at me. All right? Nikki, do you have something you want to ask her to share? Probably doing a little bit for Krishna. A little bit for Krishna. A bit for Krishna. <laughs> and as you as you do it more and more, you'll be doing it more and more for Krishna. Of course, you're doing a little bit for Krishna. And whatever little bit you're doing it for Krishna for, is going to bring you a kind of happiness that's different from material happiness. And you'll say, "Well, that's nice." And then the amount to which you're doing it for Krishna will keep increasing. And every once in a while, Krishna will show you, hey, you still are doing it for all these other nasty reasons. And you'll say, ew, I don't want to do it for those reasons. And then sometimes you'll think, well, maybe I shouldn't do it at all. I'll say, no, 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 you keep doing it, but just get rid of the nasty reasons. It's hard because... Yes, it's hard. <laughs> I didn't say it was easy. Yeah. Krishna doesn't say it's easy. In fact, Krishna says it's hard. He says it's hard. I've been working on my, you know, um, you know, practicing and studying to become a yoga teacher overnight, over different you know, more than five years, maybe more than that. And so, you know, I'm doing, you know, doing the teaching. I feel like, you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm a controller, and it's really hard to think of. Pushing. It's very hard, but it will come. It will get easier and easier. First of all, you should enjoy it. We're not sent, spiritual life doesn't mean you don't enjoy things anymore. That would be awful. Anybody want that? Okay, spiritual life means you just suffer. You should enjoy it, but your reason for enjoying it will change. Instead of enjoying it because I'm such a competent person, I have so many talents, I work so hard, this is my achievement, I'm good. You'll be enjoying it because Krishna's smiling at you. Because it's part of your relationship with him. And he's smiling at you just because he loves you and you're trying, not how good you are. Then you're trying to do things well instead of to show off how good you are. You're trying to do things well so he'll accept your love. Right, right. So I think this kind of talking about little thing about, you know, like Ranavagita is, you know, is this, you know, sort of 
the guests, if you know, people come, uh -huh. come here and have coconuts and we don't do that. Um, but could you explain how how do they relate? Yeah. I'm not the best person to answer that question. Okay. I know of some people who are. Satyaraj knows that. He's uh, written a lot of books about Krishna consciousness. And I could give you his email and he could answer that question for you. But I can't. So that's out of my I don't I don't know the answer to that. I could give you a general answer, but I couldn't answer you very specifically. So I'd rather refer you to an expert. I do know that the purpose of the, of the exercises and the breathing is to put your body and mind in a situation where remembrance of Krishna is easier. That's the purpose. It's to situate the body and mind mechanically in a state of goodness. as a simple answer. Is that all right? Yes, did you have something you wanted to ask or, or share? Well, I really enjoyed reading this section, but um, text number five, I really liked, because it really reminded me how I'm yeah, just really attached to certain things, um, like fame and wanting recognition. Just really realizing that my false ego is really strong. Like, mm. And uh, I didn't want to ask anything about that, but it's yeah, quite a nice section for me to read. Cause yeah, I love text four and five for this yeah. chapter. Yeah. But um, in text number six, I think, um, I just want to purport where it's, we were just mentioning how we should be captivated by the spiritual, mm -hmm. it, or else we'll be captivated by the material. Yes. Well, how do we develop captivation for the spiritual? First of all, associating with people who are captivated. Mm. Associate with people who have that desire, who have that interest, who like to talk about Krishna, who like to talk about the spiritual world. And if Srila Prabhupada, associate with his books, with his lectures. I met a devotee the other day, he's been a devotee for a long time, and said, oh, I can't understand Prabhupada's lectures. You've got to listen to them for a while to get past the heavy accent. But our prime person to associate with is Srila Prabhupada, and then we can associate with Bhakti Siddhanta and Bhakti Vinod and Nari Muni, and then there are lots of devotees walking around the planet today who are also captivated by Krishna. Associate with him. And hear, 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 hear. Hearing, 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 hearing. The more I hear about Krishna, that's how people get captivated by anything. Like Krishna says in the 262, by contemplating the objects of the senses, one develops attachment for them. Anything you think about, you'll become attached to it. You'll become captivated by it. People write PhD dissertations on the funniest things, you know. A particular kind of mold that grows on a particular plant in a particular river. They got captivated by it. And the reason you can get captivated by anything in this world is because it's part of Krishna. So if I, if I can become totally captivated by, you know, some bird, one particular bird, there are people who spend their whole life captivated by one species of bird or one species of worm, right? Mm -hmm. 
I like to check the headlines of the news periodically. And I, I didn't read the article, but I saw there was one scientist who's intimately studying ants and was showing how she even paints each ant a different color so that she can identify them and follow their movements. And hopefully she's doing something useful for the world. But the point is she's captivated by ants. Why? Anything you meditate on, why? Why? Because the ant is a soul. It's a little bit of Krishna, and it's part of Krishna's energy, and Krishna's created it, and they are, they're wonderful, they're interesting, and they're fascinating. So how much more wonderful and interesting and fascinating is Krishna? So hear about him. Hear about his pastimes. We have Krishna book, we have Chaitanya Charitamrita, the Bhagavatam is full of so many stories. Krishna... And they're, they're wonderful stories. And then think about them. Just like ordinary person, they're thinking about, you know, this famous person or that famous person. Or That's how they become interested in them. They're thinking about them. And someday, Krishna will notice that you're thinking about him. And he'll reveal himself. He's already revealed himself to each of us to some extent. And that's why we're here. We ate some prasadam and we said, wow, what is this? That was Krishna. We went to a kirtan and said, wow, what is this? We read the books and said, wow, what is this? That's Krishna showing himself to us a little bit. Giving us a little, you know, little, because we did something he reciprocated. So the more you're interested in them, one day he'll show up. And then becoming captivated by him is very easy. Right? But, you know, in the beginning stage is something you have to work at. He's a lot more interesting than anything going on materially. Yes, Samahini. Um, text 9 says um, the pure and consciousness are pure and is chained according to the association of material quality. And therefore, one is situated in Krishna consciousness, peace, and pure life. What happens with the baby when uh, uh, the baby is um, born in the body's family? It, it, because his association with the body or is, is in the process of having Krishna consciousness and is pure? Or, or depending on when. Well, it's individual. It's individual. There are some living entities who are already pure, and they come here to take birth to preach. Or they're almost pure, and they come here just to finish up some last remaining thing and to preach. Uh, But generally, someone taking birth in a devotee family is to some degree pure, but not entirely, otherwise they wouldn't be taking birth. So it's usually some mixture. And then taking birth is risky. Prabhupada said, do not take your birth again and again in this Kali Yuga. It's risky. There's a lot of contamination around. But certainly there's somebody who's very advanced in Krishna consciousness. That their prime desire was for Krishna. Their main desire was for Krishna. But pure? That's rare. People who are already pure don't generally take birth in the material world unless they come for some purpose. 
It's like people who didn't commit a crime don't usually go to prison unless they're going there to preach. But they may be on a very high level of purity. Their, their degree of contamination may be very slight. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And what did you have today? <coughs> I just, yeah, I also like this chapter. Surrender process, it's described here very nicely and gets just a very nice explanation. Mm. Often when you surrender, and yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what if, like, you know, two cups of water? And <laughs> <laughs> What's the formula? And, yeah, so I like the way it was described. Thank you. Anything else? Okay. Did you have a question or something you wanted to share? About what you want to do? I mean, again, it's a question of, I don't want to go to the island, but I choose to go because I want to spend time with my mother. Mm-hmm. Or I choose to go to the island because I want to make my mother happy. So I think that's a case where if it wasn't making my mother happy, there was no way that I would go. It's, it's the same thing like, if it wasn't making Krishna happy, there is no way I would have worked on those word lists. Forget it. I've been working on them for six months. And if I showed you what kind of work it was, it's maddening. I, I wouldn't do it for money. I wouldn't do it for, you know, I, I just can't think of other reasons why I would do it. I just wouldn't. But I would do it to please Krishna. So it's the same thing. And, and why do you care about pleasing your mother? Well, you care about pleasing your mother, first of all, because it's natural for a living entity to want to please their mother. That's just natural. It's just part of our biology. It's how children survive, is that we're wired to try to please our parents. Otherwise, we would die as little children. And that sort of may, you know, continues as we grow up. We have a desire to please our parents. And also, you'll see as we go through in Bhagavad Gita, one of the austerities in the mode of goodness is to worship your father and mother. Well, it's an austerity that Krishna is recommending, and therefore we want Krishna to be happy with us. And because I don't want Krishna to be happy with us, I choose to do something nice for my mother because that'll please Krishna. And maybe you're also doing it because you'd like your mother to think that devotees are nice people, and you you know you want to give her a good impression of devotees. So I choose to do it because I want my mother to think that devotees are are nice. So you don't have to. No, you don't. And if none of those reasons exist, if it doesn't matter to you what your mother thinks of the devotee, if you really don't care about having a nice relationship with your mother, then you may not choose to go. So what desires, what do you express to the person to say, oh, I want to go because I want to be with you? I mean, you could say honestly, you know, well, this wouldn't, you know, if, it, if you weren't going, I probably wouldn't go. 
This isn't a place that I would choose to go. You don't have to say that. You're saying, well, I'm not crazy about the place, but I want to be with you, and if that's a place that you'd like to go, my interest is to be with you. That's really all the person wants anyway. You know, they really want to be with you. They want a relationship with you. And if they say, well, if you're not interested in this place, is there a place you're interested in? And then you can talk about that. Or maybe there isn't any. I mean, you don't have to say things like, this place is the most boring, stupid, useless place I could possibly go to, but I'm going to go to make you happy. You know, that's not very favorable. <laughs> but you know, you know, Mom, I really want to be with you. You've come here to visit me, and I want to spend this time with you, and I want you to be happy, I want, if, if that's how you genuinely feel. And I want you to have a pleasant visit, visit here, and I want you to have good memories. And really, your time here is not about the places that I want to go to for myself, because the places I want to go to for myself, I, go, I can go to anyway. This is, is really about the places that you want to go. And my enjoyment is to be with you. That, that's, that's my pleasure on this, on this trip. So, look, you're the guest here. Why don't you choose places that you that you have some interest in seeing, and maybe there'll be some places that we're both interested in seeing, and that's fine too. But yeah, if you don't have any reasons, then if you really don't care about your relationship with somebody, then you're willing to accept those consequences that you don't have such a good relationship with that person. If you don't want to be with them, you don't care what they think of you, you don't care whether or not they're happy, if none of those things matter to you, then you can say, well, I'd really rather not go. You know, if you want to go, then you're welcome to go, but I, I have some other things I'd rather do, and thanks for asking me. I mean, again, think of it from your point of view. Do you want somebody doing something with you and feeling resentful the whole time? Again, I mean, I'd rather have somebody do something resentfully sometimes than not at all, but I really don't want people doing things resentfully. There are some times when it's just, hey, you know, you got to do your schoolwork, kid, and whether you like it or not, it's too bad you have to do it, but I, that's not the way I want them to do it. I, I may say to a, a, especially to a child, you know, or an employee or whatever, you know, say, I'm sorry, if, if you want to keep your job, this is what you have to do. I, I'd prefer that you enjoyed it, but look, this is just what has to be done. Sorry. It does help when you're dealing with subordinates to sometimes just say, you know, look, I understand that this isn't a very pleasant job. And nobody wants to do it, and I don't like to do it, and I can understand that you don't want to do it, and I'm really sorry I have to ask you. But the reason that it has to be done is this and this and this. I mean, I asked people to help me with the word lists on Monday. I was working on it from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night. And I think the other people work from about maybe 10 to 5. So I had all together, one person just helped for, for a couple hours. And I knew it was awful work. It was terrible work. It was, it, was, it was torture work. It was not pleasant work. But I said to them, this is why we need it done. This is, this is the purpose of it. 
this is what it's for. And, and you know, if you're willing to help me with this, I'd be really grateful because I can't possibly do it by myself. And that, that helps other people, too. Does that make some sense? So if I'm in charge of people, you know, sometimes with kids in school, you have to say, look, this, yeah, this particular exercise isn't fun. It's difficult, it's boring, but if you want to achieve X, Y, Z, this is what you have to do. <laughs> Sorry. You know, so at least try to take pleasure in the goal. That helps people. It kind of relieves their, that feeling. And if you know that someone's, you know, if you were in the position of your mother, you could say to someone, look, I really appreciate it. I know that going to this island wasn't what you would probably have preferred to do and you had other things you wanted to do and I'm really, really grateful that you chose to spend the day with me doing something I want to do. Thank you very much. How'd you feel good if somebody says something like that to you? So you can say things like that to people too. It's a good manager. And it helps get people off because the mode of passion is you're doing things resentfully. The mode of goodness is you're doing things happily. So it helps the people you work with to get out of the mode of passion. That kind of stuff happens in a family all the time. And you see sometimes, especially women tend to do this to their husbands. I want you to do this because you want to. You know, poor guy. He's like, well, I'm doing it. And it can be sometimes you can say to him, you know, look, dear, I know that you don't like going to the mall. And I'm really, you know, thank you for being willing to spend your time with me and do something that I want to do. I really appreciate it. It's a very nice gift you're giving to me, even though I know this is not your favorite thing to do. Instead of insisting that the person has to like it for its own sake, that's just silly. You know, if your mother says to you, well, you have to like going to the islands, like, but I don't. Like going to the island. <laughs> what am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> it's, it's not a, it's not a reasonable thing to ask of somebody else. People are pretty expected to want to enjoy, like in the way that they want to enjoy. Yeah. But that's not always going to happen, you know. Exactly with their way that they want to. Yeah. And then you can leave it up to them. You can say, you know, if, if you'd rather I not go under those circumstances, that's fine too. But frankly, I'd like to be with you. I want to spend the day with you. And I'm, and I'm very happy to spend the day with you doing something that you like to do, even if it wouldn't be my favorite activity without you. And if, if they say that's not good enough, say, well, then it's up to you. You know, you can, you can have me under those conditions or you can go by yourself, whatever, whatever you choose to do. But I would really like to go with you. And, and give that to other people. I, I really think we have a hard time giving that to other people. I don't know why I see that more with women than with men. I want you to do it because you love me. I do love you, but you don't want to do this. You know, and the poor guy just kind of rolls his eyes and walks in the other room, and then the woman's like, oh, he doesn't love me. I don't know why. It seems to be... I mean, men do it too, but women particularly seem to do that thing. 
You have to do this because you want to. Always give to other people what you want to get. So if you want, if you want people to respect your tastes and your likes and dislikes and your freedom, please give it to other people. And if there's something you really want to do with somebody and it's not something that they want to do, give them the freedom not to have their own likes and dislikes. That the other person can have their own likes and dislikes without it having anything to do with their relationship with you. It's all right. Whether or not you like the island had nothing to do, I'm sure, with how much you love your mother. It's two totally separate things, right? Ultimately, spiritual life, there's no force. In this material world, we're being forced by the modes that we choose to associate with. Does that make sense? I choose to drink coffee and then it forces me to act in a certain way. I choose to associate with a mode that then forces me. But in, in spiritual awakened life, there's no force. Zero. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Be free. It's all free. So we can start practicing that kind of mentality also, respecting other people's freedom. Remember, what is it? The only thing that we own. There's only one thing we own, our will, our freedom. That's the only thing we own. So do respect it in other living beings, that every living being has that. That's, that belongs to them. It doesn't matter if they're your child or your husband or your, whatever they are. It's, it's, all, it's always theirs. Now that's always voluntary. Krishna really respects that with us, by the way. He does not force That's a hard thing to do. Because we in this world trying to be Krishna, the way we try to be Krishna is by forcing. And one head Pujari, about a year ago, said, Yarmula, I really want your advice. Okay, what is that? She said, How can I force the other Pujaris to be more responsible? And I said, how can you force? And she stopped and said, no, I mean, how can I inspire? But that wasn't what she meant. She meant, how can I force? That's what she meant. So that, but that's our tendency. I, I want to be God by taking away your free will, by forcing you, by obligating you, by making you feel guilty, by making you feel shamed, by, you know, in some way. And that's, that doesn't, Krishna doesn't let that kind of stuff go on in his, his spiritual world. You don't play those games there. It's not allowed. You want to play like that, you have to come here. You know, no forcing, no violence. Not his style. He's free. He's, he's into freedom. You want to do it, you do it. You don't want to do it, you don't do it. There's no force. That's, that's real respect. Real respect is I, I respect somebody else's free will. Prophet says well, real management is to, what does he say? How is it exactly? The spirit of enthusiastic service, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. 
So real management is you encourage people to do service as individuals, spontaneous and voluntary. And when you have to ask people to do things that they would prefer not to do, be upfront about it. Because sometimes you have to ask people to do things that you know that they don't want to do. Then you have to get something that they want to do it for. And, and not to use guilt or pressure or, you know, well, if you want to live in the ashram, this is just what you have to do. But more like, look, I know you don't like this. I know it's difficult for you. Like with that girl, I mean, I finally just said, okay, look, just you won't do the compost. It's okay. Just forget it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to keep pushing this anymore. It's not worth it. So some people, you may say, okay, look, you know, I, you don't have to have this duty. That's all right. Come on. Just forget it. And for some people, you might say, look, I'm really sorry. I have to ask you. I'd rather not ask you. I know you don't like to do this. But it has to be done. And there isn't anybody else to do it, and I'm doing this all day. Would you please help? Would you please be willing to help? I, I, you know, if you don't want to do it, fine. You can say no. I really need it. And sometimes you may have to say to somebody, look, you know, in order for the ashram to run properly, we really require that people have to do X, Y, Z. And you don't have to be and live in the ashram to be Krishna conscious. You can have your own place. You know, but if, if you choose to live here, then this is what's required. You know, and please make up your mind and decide where you want to live and what price you want to pay for it. Because this, this is the price to live here. This is the way it is. And please make up your mind. I don't want you to live here if you don't want to. And it's like, <sighs> sometimes we just wish another person would at least understand that I'm making a sacrifice. Isn't it? It's kind of a relief. Is there something that you had a question about or something you wanted to share? Uh, just my question. Um, I live um, only once. Okay. So I'm considering like the place, so not being in. Um, could you explain what an impersonal Brahman is? Could I explain what the impersonal Brahman is? Oh my. I'm thinking of some people, some people I know who've been there who could explain it better than I could. <laughs> it's. I'm probably going to go to analogies. It's Krishna's effulgence. Each of us has a little bit of light. Like we say, the light in your eyes. If you ever see someone die, or any living entity die, they say you see the light go out of their eyes, and you actually do. Each of us is emitting some light. We're very tiny souls. So Krishna is also emitting light. In fact, he's the source he says, I am the source of all light and all luminous objects. And that was actually in this chapter, how a little bit of the light from Krishna is, is coming into this world. So just like, we probably don't need these light bulbs on here anymore. But this, the sun is 93 million miles away, according to modern science. Okay? And although it's 93 million miles away, just coming through the window, and then that window's covered, but even coming through those curtains, even with the curtains there, you can see some light. Even if we put those curtains, even if we close those other curtains, there'd probably be enough light for us to see very well. And that sun is just a little bit of Krishna's, of the light that comes out of his body. 
So the light that comes out of his body is called the Brahman effulgence. Now the light that comes out of his body is also him. Brahmaniti, Parvatmiti, Bhagavaniti, Sabjite. That the absolute truth is understood from three ways, as just all-pervading light, as what's called the super-soul, the kind of conglomerate self, the self of the self, and as Bhagavan, as the person Krishna. So to see Krishna as light is, is really just existence. As the super-soul is as existence and all-knowing, and as Krishna is as existence, all-knowing, and also full of pleasure. So the Brahman effulgence is God, but God understood only partially. Another example would be this painting. This painting is the artist, but it's the artist understood only partially. I can understand something of the artist from the painting, but it's partial understanding. So understanding of Krishna as Brahman is partial understanding. I'm not understanding all of his features. And the Brahman is alive. It's God. It's spiritual. It's not like... Like, I don't see this light as alive, although actually this light is also part of the Brahmacharya. But it's spiritual. Prabhupada said it's made up of little spiritual sparks like us. It's a living, living light. But there's no variety there. There's no activity there. Kind of like just, you've had a hard week or month or whatever and you go to the sea and you just float in the water and you go ah but it gets boring after a while after a while you come out of the water and do something again so the Brahman is just that kind of ah existence I think that's the best I can do It's also God. But it's God not understood fully. It's God understood partially. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Okay, is there anything else? Okay. Thank you very much. All glory to Shri Prabhupada.